Welcome to Flashback, a podcast by the Okaloosa County Public Information Office. Get ready to dust the nostalgia off your sleeve as we talk with Okaloosa citizens who share with us how things used to be. I'm your host, Nick Tomacek. It's time to step into your imaginary DeLorean, tap your flux capacitor, and flashback. Hello, Flashbackers. What do you think of when you think of the town of Shalimar? If you don't live there, you may think of a bridge, a six-lane thoroughfare with some gas stations, the tax collector office, and some decent lunch spots. If you live there or have spent any time within the town limits, and the town isn't quite as big as the post office makes it out to be, I'll get to that later. If you live there in the town limits, you know the town is impeccably well-maintained from a visual standpoint. Yards are groomed. The balance between shade trees and open air is comforting, and the town hall and its chief of police, John Cash, yes, that's his name, still has a small town feel inside. It almost boasts its simplicity to the rest of the world around it, a world that in the summertime here seems to be covered in the angst of tourists and the rush of people hurrying to have fun. Well, the town of Shalimar recently celebrated its 75th anniversary and I thought it would be timely to explore some of the history of Shalimar. Some of you local history buffs probably already know some things, but some of these that I'm about to talk about you may not. We'll get into whether German U-boats actually infiltrated the shores of the Choctaw Bay and what would have happened if it turned into the largest seaport in the world as some early developers wanted. And of course, we'll discuss the role of the nightlife in the early years of Shalimar. One of the most remarkable things I discovered about Shalimar is about a place called Black Point. It's located on the Choctahatchee Bay where Miggs Drive, Jack Nicholas Way, and Boulevard of Champions comes together. I learned about this area from a link that the current Shalimar mayor, Mark Franks, he shared with me, and it goes to a Facebook post, a historic Facebook group called West Florida and Panhandle History Expressed. In the post, there was a photo of an old man standing next to an old metal mining cart. It's the kind that you might see in an old-timey documentary about minor 49ers. It was full of some kind of black rock-like substance that had the look of coal, and it appeared to be sitting on tracks of some kind. On the other side of this man was an ox or a cow or some kind of livestock used for working, the Post said it was a man at the Phosphorus Mine in Shalimar, about 1913 or so. A Phosphorus Mine in Shalimar? This piqued my interest. Farther down in the Post, a woman by the name of Kay Saxon Brooks posted excerpts from old articles that described the area where the photo was taken. According to the articles Kay had found, it wasn't a Phosphorus Mine. It was, though, a mine for a substance called humate, and it was used for making dye. I reached out to Kay Saxon Brooks to see if her curiosity into this part of Shalimar was as intense as mine. Mine. Get it? All right. All right, here's Kay. Well, I live about ten houses, nine houses down from Black Point. Wow. And I'm a local, so... When I was raised, I was raised right down at 48 Meg's Drive. So we would play down there all the time as children. There was no development down there. Wow. At the end of Meg's Drive, where there's a stop sign where you can go either right or left on mm -hmm. Boulevard of Champions. 
there weren't any houses out here, and that was completely undeveloped. People still hunted back there and went down to the lake Rain to fish. There were alligators in the lake. But anyway, the the dye plant, Mama had a friend by the name of Doris Hanks. Her husband had a a gas station up in Shalimar. His name was David Hanks. Then they would always take us in the Jeep on the weekends all around the county going in the woods looking for different stuff. And we would sometimes go down to Black Point to where the dye plant was and look for old artifacts like glass bottles and things like that. And then when as we would grow up, every, when you know you were outside all the time, so we would always either range towards Black Point or down towards what we call the channel, what is now called Meg's Park. And we were just gone all day long and played down there all the time. So then as I got older and found the, and understood the history of the dye plant, um, I collected some of those newspaper articles when I was looking for some of the history of our area. And because it's so close and so pertinent, I, I really took an interest in it. Then I happened to come across the, uh, the article that Dr. John Bryant, the geologist professor up at Northwest Florida, wrote mm-hmm. about uh, the, the humate that was mined at the dye plant. Yeah. So that I came across that a fortuitous time, and so I reached out to him to talk to him about that. So we've been kind of emailing back and forth with some of the his asking questions about the history, and he was filling me on some of the stuff. There was nothing left by the time we came along, which was in the '60s when we were ranging as children playing. There was nothing left except you know for the uh, surface articles like the glass bottles or, and things like that. But so, one time, according to that uh, newspaper article and some of the other things, it was thriving. When my daddy went to war in the 40s, there were 70 people in Fort Walton. Back at the turn of the century, 1910 and 17, there were 250 people employed at Black Point. Wow. Because of that dye, that dye plant. But you could hear people, it was probably illegal, but you could hear people through the years when I was growing up um, shooting down there. Gotcha. And they were so grown up, even when I was little, and the, um, they used to, I don't know where it was, but sometimes prisoners would get loose, and the sheriff's posse was literally on horses back then, and you could hear them coming down the street looking for the prisoners got loose. <laughs> uh, very, very interesting. Was, very cool. Yeah, it was so wooded back here then. And so I guess that was pre-golf course and all that too, right? Oh, yeah. Okay. Actually, where we live right now, my grandparents' house, they had the first, it was the first house built out here on Meg's Drive in this area when it developed. And it wasn't even Meg's Drive then. To get the materials here for the house was just a dim road that came off Eglin Parkway, which was only a two-road, uh, two-lane road then. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, there was, there was nothing. I had bobcat and, and bear and deer and snakes. And it was wilderness, literally. It was the, you know, pretty much the first uh, residence literally built out here. Wow. Because my grandfather picked it. He's he's a big fisherman. He had a hardware store in Fort Walton called the Bay the Bay Store. Okay. And he would trout fish over here and his favorite spot was right off where we are now. Right about the time the dye plant was in operation is about the same time as World War One. Kay's description of Black Point as she remembers it was interesting to hear. But what was Humate really like? Kay shared with me a 1965 geological survey that describes the Humate that existed in the 19-teens 
and still exists today, it describes Black Point with layers of dune and beach sand along the north coast of the Gulf of Mexico. It's cemented or impregnated with a conspicuous dark to brown black water-soluble organic substance herein called humate. The humate cemented sand is generally 6 inches to 3 feet thick, but as much as 15 feet thick in some places. The survey goes on to say that it turns out that humate or humate cemented sand was used as a dye, as we already knew, of the Van Dyke brown color variety and used to dye paper and paints. A man by the name of Dr. J.D. Haasman from Vienna, Austria, claimed to have discovered this humate and embarked along with a businessman to create the dye plant that was described in an article as, will be one of the most paying propositions in the state. Haasman would run this plant until 1916 when it was taken over by an operator by the name of Silas Gibson, who later became a well-known school builder and dairy farmer. Gibson was asked by a New Orleans firm to get the dye plant running and have the substance shipped west. The dye business was lucrative at the time because Germany had cut off supplies of the dye during World War I, and the U.S. needed another way to get dye. Now, speaking of Germany, you may have heard a wild story about German U-boats in the Choctahatchee Bay. I've found some newspaper stories about people making this claim, and one related to our Haasman that claimed he brought in workers to work at his plant that was disguised as a dye plant, but was really making gunpowder and other supplies for the Germans. And when the U.S. government found out he was doing this, Haasman split town and dumped all the evidence in Garnier's Bayou. I believe all this to be false, mainly because there is evidence that Haasman remained in the area well after World War I. Now, I do not know why Haasman stopped running the plant and why Gibson took it over. What I do know is that Gibson and Haasman had reportedly arrived in Camp Walton in the same week, and maybe Haasman just wasn't good at running a business, and after things went downhill, another company came in and hired Gibson to run it. Kay uh, Saxon Brooks had some ideas about this, too. Here's Kay again. So, I do not think a U-boat could have gotten in our pass at that time. Yeah. Now, were the German submarines off the coast here uh, on the Gulf side? Absolutely. Yeah? I don't, I haven't. Well, tell me, I'll tell me more. You. Well, my, my dad worked over at Tower Beach back in the 50s. They captured a German person for whatever, however he got on the shore. They found him and uh, turned him over. And, and this was in uh, what what uh, time period was this that they found during him? The war, during the war. It was. Yeah. That's wild. About the time I was researching this episode, I also heard from Gareth Stearns about this particular subject. And I had to get his input on this controversy, conspiracy mumbo-jumbo. I run a Facebook group called For Walton Beach What We Did. It's sort of become the definitive go-to resource for all things related to the history of Okaloosa County, or at least I like to think it is. We know there was this substance out there at Black Point. Tell us, tell us what you found. So there is an urban legend that Dr. Haasman may have been up to no good. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he's got a German-sounding name. Yeah. Um, this is World War One, or at the time they called it the Great War or the war to end all wars. Um, so naturally, people had suspicions about people with German-sounding names. So th- that that's the first layer of where urban legends such as there were U-boats in the Choctahatchee Bay or they weren't mining dye stuffs, they were making explosives or whatnot. 
But I, I came across an article from 1917 that lends some credence, perhaps, to at least how an urban legend like that could possibly okay, come Okay, okay, what do we got here? I'm going to read directly from this 1916 article entitled Industrial Preparedness. The industrial preparedness inventory of the United States is the lion and mouse down to date. Mm. A number of our manufacturers at first doubted the ability of their plants to aid the government in times of national crisis, but it has now been clearly demonstrated that 80% of the industries of America could be concentrated on producing supplies necessary for modern warfare. It has been learned, for instance, that a dye factory may be transformed within a week or 10 days into a plant for the production of high explosives. Come on. The Committee on Industrial Preparedness, enlisting as it has the best scientific and commercial brains in the country, thoroughly understands all this and is guiding its labors thereby. So this was the stuff that was being written in the newspapers. And of course, this is right at the height of America's involvement in World War One. So it's, you know, the more things change, the more things stay the same. People are always going to have... You know, there's going to be extremes about what is or what's not going to happen. Yeah. The shades of gray are going to disappear. Um, there have been other articles written in the the local newspapers about the history of the dye mine. I found one that was written 51 years ago in 1971, mm -hmm. and it makes men. Uh, at this time in 1971, there were still people that were living that had actual memories of the uh the dye mine of the dye mine did you come across this no article? i didn't tell me about this what, okay. what we, was this so this is again this is from a 1971 article mm -hmm. and it's titled choctahatchee bay subsoil makes good dye tell us uh, what this says it does um mention some of the people that that worked here that worked for the mine it does mention some of the uh some of the urban legends surrounding it i'm just going to read from it even before the United States entered the war, the Allied blockade of Germany had halted the country's shipments of dye to the U.S. That had created a critical shortage since the country had depended on Germany and German-developed processes for its dyes prior to the war. Perhaps also it was used in the manufacture of explosives. Maybe the operators purposefully left the substance and its uses shrouded in a bit of mystery. And I think they kind of did, because here we are still talking about it 52 yeah, years later. Well. But they had the same questions. They didn't definitively say this was you know, used for explosives. But so there was another article published in 1977. Again, this was from a, one of the, this was from the, the Pensacola News Journal. They, they, they discussed the possibility of not just explosives being made, but U-boats, German U-boats actually entering the bay. But they also mentioned that it was unsubstantiated. So this is, you know, clickbait, really. This is 1970s. 1970s clickbait. Absolutely. That's a good way to put it. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's right. So it, it begins with, it's a very good story and one that at least one self-proclaimed historian vows is true. But other more cautious souls say the story is based on fact and has been apparently embellished with suspicions and gossip born of imagination stimulated by a terrible and spreading war and on natural conjecture. I think that about sums it up, doesn't it? Pretty not? much. I think I, that's well put. The next mention I can find of the dye mine was in 1916 and it was just being built. And it said, this is from the, uh, the Pensacola News Journal. It says, new dye mine is prosper prosperity sign. Mm -hmm. Industry recently established near Gagne's Bayou, making good and employing local labor. And yes, I said Gagne's Bayou and not Garnier's Bayou or Garnier's <laughs> Bayou. But yeah, we'll get to that in a future podcast. Okay, all right. Bayou. It yeah. is pronounced Gagne's Bayou. Among the many new industri industries which are putting West Florida on the commercial map may be mentioned the dye mine, recently opened at Black Point near Gagne's Bayou under the management of Professor James A. Wright. Uh-huh. Interesting. 
W R I G H T. Interesting. Interesting indeed. So, uh, I know that I've read a lot of newspaper articles from over a hundred years ago. Uh, this is probably the one that that needs to be read the most because it really provides a a perfect account of what the area looked like, what it felt like, what it sounded like. This is written a hundred years ago by a Captain Patterson who was a captain of a schooner that went up and down the Santa Rosa Sound from Pensacola to Chattahatchie Bay making deliveries you know, to Freeport and, and the areas Boggy Bayou all around the area. So again this is Captain Patterson. I myself, though a citizen since 1866, have towed thousands of pieces of timber and millions of feet of lumber down the Chattahatchie Bay, but never did I dream that there was so much wealth beneath the sandy soil of Black Point, five miles east of Camp Walton. I had never heard of it or seen it in print, and I doubt very much if there are 50 persons in the city who have ever heard anything about a dye plant operated on a small scale for more than a year at Black Point. There are several essential conditions to make anything successful, such as working a dye plant. First, there must be an abundance of material, and second, the conditions of the manufacturer must be healthful. The public should know something about it. Information is to the possible good and is to the building and establishing a permanent enterprise that will be a blessing not alone to the immediate neighborhood where it is located, but to the portion of the state in which it is situated. Black Point, situated on Chattahatchie Bay, is a very beautiful place. The country is high and rolling, surrounded by pine forests and with a sandy loam soil. Six miles across the bay is Santa Rosa Island, a narrow strip of land washed by the Gulf of Mexico. The atmosphere is pure, no swamps of malaria breeding stagnant water. The inhaling of the life-giving ozone coming with the pure air right from the Gulf is invigorating and strengthening. I am not writing from fancy, but from an experience of more than two months engaged in handling four large lighter loads of about 280 tons of boilers, machinery, bricks, pipes, lumber, and other materials. The bay abounds in fish, and only a short distance away, oysters are to be found in abundance. The backwaters wash the beach clean and keep it free from anything contaminating. The promoters of this great enterprise deserve the praise and cooperation, not only of the citizens of the immediate vicinity, but of the entire state. The writer has been all over this globe of ours, has associated with men in all walks of life, and engaged in various businesses, but never has he had received more congenial, friendly, and gentlemanly treatment than since coming to the Black Point Dye Works. I take this method of expressing my appreciation of their kindness to me, and my prayer is that they may be blessed in this, their great and laudable undertaking. Respectfully, J.C. Patterson. That's pretty neat. I appreciate you uh, enlightening us, Gareth. It certainly uh, gives some reason as to why the, the rumors started and then gives some pretty good insight onto Black Point, a, a, an area people who have lived their entire lives in Shalmar have never even heard of, that yeah. there was a dye plant in Shalimar at one point. So, very cool stuff. I appreciate it, Gareth. Yeah, absolutely. What I can gather about Mr. Hosman is that he was a doctor, not sure of what, but I found articles well after World War I that showed he was part of a team working in the county to eradicate mosquitoes. This is possibly some of the first efforts as the county mosquito control department. He also published an article in 1921 naming the humate material he discovered after himself. In the paper he called it Hasamite and concluded in the paper the humic acid origin of asphalt and the belief that humate in Florida and elsewhere was the source material for petroleum. Now an argument could be made that he published this in an effort to revive or create a business interest. 
Speaking of business, Shalimar was originally known as Port Dixie. The actual town of Shalimar is located mostly west of Eglin Parkway. The rest, minus the Shalimar Town Hall and Police Station, was known as Port Dixie. You'll notice how the streets are laid out in a grid pattern like bigger cities. This particular planning is probably the only visible evidence left of an enterprise from the 1920s and 30s of a huge development plan for the part of unincorporated Okaloosa County with the Shalimar zip code. Port Dixie was expected to be a world player in the shipping industry. Listen to this 1920s description from an article in the Pensacola Journal. Quote, it is an industrial enterprise destined to be the second largest seaport in the United States. Port Dixie has the finest natural deep water harbor on the entire Gulf of Mexico and the greatest tributary hinterland of any port in the world. Port Dixie is the closest commercial port in the United States to the Panama Canal and through it to the growing international trade with the Orient. That is quite a description. Back in the 1920s, $29 million was spent to acquire all the property. To think about that in 1920s terms, that's a lot of money, an equivalent today to a half a billion dollars. Imagine putting a half a billion dollar investment into a venture in Shalimar today. Back then, investors included engineers, railroad developer, oil businessmen, tycoons of such. And the idea they were thinking was to dredge the East Pass so that large ships could get through. And then they would make their way to the port where a newly built railroad would deliver goods to the rest of the country. An excerpt from a news story said that M.C. Miller, who was a personal representative for the syndicate of investors of Port Dixie, said there would be, and it would be, quote, ready-made town of the first importance with considerable more advantages and luxuries than most towns have today, end quote. And in the center of this handsome plaza, it said, a police department would be similar to Texas Ranger or the Northwest Mounted Police. Can you imagine that here in Shalimar? Can you imagine underground power lines? And at the end of the article, there was an ad for, this was interesting, malaria medicine. It said, take oxidine for the chills and fever by removing their cause, which is malaria. People who take oxidine feel well and are well. I hope I didn't give a free ad for oxidine. I don't think it still exists. What a wild time to be living in, though. The drive and imagination that these investors seem to have had is impressive, but their vision, as you know, was not realized. Time went by and Port Dixie plans did not develop into a reality as of 1930, so over 10 years went by. But still, a 1931 article continued to build up the idea of a Port Dixie development despite lack of action. The media hype at that time was really something. But things slowed to a crawl. The Florida housing boom collapsed, then the Great Depression. Another thing worth noting is the inevitable realization that opening the East Pass to the size of ships that they wanted is not going to be a possibility. Shalimar formed, was incorporated during the World War II era. Houses were constructed for Eglin officers and their families by Clifford Meggs. Meggs is a son-in-law of James Ellsworth Plew, who was a mover and shaker of the times who moved here from Chicago, and he's considered the founder of the town of Valparaiso. 
Plue had success with a towel rental business for hospitals that became huge in the Midwest. He developed a Plue bicycle seat, was an early used car dealer, and an avid airplane enthusiast. In fact, he was one of the first passengers on the Wright Brothers airplane. He owned the first airplane in Chicago before 1910. A movie could probably be made about Mr. Plue. But I'm sorry, let me keep things moving. What about the name Shalimar? According to newspaper accounts, the name Shalimar was suggested by Plue's daughter. She likely got the idea from the popularity of the word Shalimar in pop culture. Shalimar has its roots as the name of a garden and in one song, a river located in India and in the Pakistan area. In 1925, the name Shalimar was added to a perfume by a perfume maker named Goran out of France. It made its way to the West and became enormously popular, and it's still around today. The perfume reviewer on YouTube that I saw recently called it elegant but a little naughty since flappers wore the scent back in the day. The scent itself is said to start off with hints of citrus, then moves to a cedar, leather, sandalwood aroma. The name Shalimar was chosen by the perfume maker probably due to a poem written by a person named Lawrence Pope. The poem was titled Kashmiri Song, and it's kind of a love story. Here's a little excerpt. Pale hands I've loved beside the Shalimar, where are you now, where are you now? Pale hands pink-tipped, like lotus buds that float on those cool waters where we used to dwell. I would have rather felt you round my throat, crushing out life than waving me farewell. Perfume reviewers call this the ultimate oriental scent. And speaking of oriental, there was in fact an ad I found in the newspapers from the 1940s selling a Shalimar-style rug. I even found the name of a sailing vessel named Shalimar in the 1940s that was active in numerous sailing regattas in South Florida. Either way, the name Shalimar was known, and it was a popular term, and known mostly for elegance. So why not a good name for a new and up-and-coming town, right? This town, of course, that would become the place to be if you were anybody. A place to socialize with celebrities and politicians. A place to dance and listen to music. And perhaps a place to enjoy some adult beverages while throwing some dice between dances with your significant other. Since the 75th anniversary celebration was recently held, I reached out to the current Shalimar mayor, Mark Franks. He met me at the Magnolia Grill in downtown Fort Walton Beach, where we sat down with restaurant owner and longtime Northwest Florida historian and volunteer, Tom Rice. Here's Tom discussing what the area looked like before there were homes and roads, and also how the nightlife from the big-named establishment, the Shalimar Club, helped the incorporation of the town. So the area was growing. The highways weren't in yet, but there was a, there was a lot of land up where we call Shalimar, Port Dixie, you know, acres and acres of land. And they had the idea to grow grapes. You know, they, they considered all this farmland. In between the bridges in Fort Walton, between the Cinco Bridge and the Shalimar Bridge, mm -hmm. Dr. Beale, Peg's great-grandfather, he looked at that as farms and they could probably plant berries there, you know, blackberries, you know, to make wine yeah. or to make, to you know, for produce. 
But in Shalimar, James Plew, you know, he was from Chicago. He owned 9,000 acres around the Valparaiso Inn. But he also came down here and, and where the fire station is next to the county building, there was a red brick building built out of clay tiles and that was the Shalimar Winery. But also, uh, we didn't bring up, I guess in the 20s, there was also a Shalimar Lodge. This is Mayor Mark Franks. And that was really, um, and later a winery. But people would came and they fish, hunt, swam, relax in a rustic lodge covered with wisteria. And here's Tom Rice again. Clue built okay. golf course and one of the toughest, you know, people yeah. from Chicago coming down playing golf. He, they would, they and I've would. heard Al Capone. Is that a true? Oh, yeah. I, yeah. I had to bring it up. Yeah, I'm thanks, sorry. man. Come on. Oh, yeah. Come on, Tom. <laughs> what about Al Capone? <laughs> no. Uh, you know, it, that, it's a fun story, but, you know, he was well, you know, he was watched a lot. They, they kept track of him. Yeah. And trains trains took him to Miami from Chicago. And that's, I mean, that's how he traveled. And, and <clears throat> nobody in the family, and we've got an extensive, you know, foundation of from Dr. Beale's time uh, you know who was who was you know here in the 1905s 1910s you know never never had any inkling you know there, there were probably shady folks that came in or somebody different yeah. but that would be like you stopping in a small town in Mississippi to get gas and they'd be looking at you with your long hair and say mm, I don't know boy what are you doing here <laughs> you know so I don't know I don't I, I don't think so um Nobody's got a picture of him. Yeah. You know. I, I don't I don't know that. I, so that's the reason I know so much about Plues, because like, oh, that's the Chicago connection. So I started researching Chicago newspapers, and um, I couldn't find anything that sounded anything like organized crime or any names connected to him. The town of Fort Walton had different schedule of blue laws, what time you could open, what time you could close. Here's Tom again talking about how the Shalimar Club helped the incorporation of the town. And so out in the county, Roger Clary had built in 1947, had built the Shalimar Club on Eglin Field Highway, this road, this two-lane road that went up to the entrance to Eglin Air Force Base and then on its way to Niceville and up to Crestview. And this was going to be a problem. Here's a guy that's he spent a considerable amount of money on this beautiful red brick, red tile, high ceiling ballroom bar and you know they were going to be shut down you know while downtown in Fort Walton the Magnolia Club would have continued to be you know, in business so that was you know the Megs you know they got to got their heads together and said if we incorporated and made a town then then we can make the rules there's a lot of focus that people do about the gambling and you know the gambling was secondary to the, to, to the operation of the dance floor, the, the, the military here, the dancing, the big bands, the bar, you know, the gambling was not just at the Magnolia Club and at the Shalimar Club, but gambling went on you know, all over the community. Yeah, everywhere. Everywhere. The newspaper know. accounts call it, they call them gambling dens. And, well, and you know, you know what, what's hilarious to me, and we talked about it at the anniversary celebration, you know, we kind of touched on it, was that you know, we're against casino gambling in Florida, except for on the Indian reservations. You know, we, we don't want any gambling. We, you know, we, we shut these things down. And who is, the, who is the biggest casino in the state of Florida? It turns out the state of Florida is the biggest casino in the state of Florida. 
scratch-offs, lotto, all these things that, you know, in those days, you know, down in the drugstore down on Main Street in Fort Walton, there were slot machines, mm -hmm. you know, uh, nickel and dime and quarter. Quarter was probably the, you know, that was the highest one. I mean, that was that was putting a lot of money in it. But the gambling, when, when Roger Clary built the Shalimar Club, and we've got some photos of it, the, the main building where the ballroom was that we used for school dances in later years in high school in Choctaw and when OW came the scholarship ball that were held, you know things that were held there the casino was a separate building that was added later now when the gambling did shut down you know the, 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 the call came that little Vegas had to go away you know that that was kind of all over the state of Florida the governor you know Sheriffs, you've got to do your job. There is no gambling. Mm -hmm. So the, the, when the gambling stopped, the Magnolia Club soon closed. The Shalimar Club closed. Luckily, you know, for for people in, in Shalimar, the Shalimar Club, while it was closed, Roger Clary kept the license. There was always a license taped to the mirror behind the bar. So when they had the Billy Bowlegs yearly you know, the yearly coronation ball, the Christmas ball, yeah. those kind of events that were held there. And this was a beautiful ballroom, um, you know, huge thing. Harry Truman came, you know, was one of the, had, had one of their banquets there. Um, and Jimmy Doolittle is pictured, you know, a lot of the pictures that were yeah. taken by Arturo for the Playground News, you know, before it was the Northwest Florida Daily News. So a lot of those, a lot of those pictures, you know, have become what, was, what went on there. The Shalimar Club had all kinds of acts and was a meeting place for local organizations too. I found ads in the newspapers in the 40s that mentioned a hilarious hat parade of 1949 at the Shalimar Club held by the Eglin officers' wives. And one of the interesting acts advertised was Bubbles Becker and his orchestra, only person to blow smoke bubbles according to Ripley's Believe It or Not. Bubbles Becker was featured at the Shalimar Club. Here's Tom again. Luckily for the community, the building is still, it was well built. Roger Clary was a builder. He, he built solid. That's, that's interesting that you said that because during Hurricane Eloise, I found an account of people that decided to hunker down. Hunker down. There was about 15, 20 people that stayed there during Eloise and no damage uh, was no the damage. report. No Nothing, damage. you know. Um, who were some of the other celebrities? Because there wasn't just Truman, wasn't just Demi Doolittle. I thought Gregory Peck. Gregory, Gregory Peck. I'm yeah. sorry, but also I was going to ask you, Tom. I've heard Andy Griffith, a young Andy Griffith, Griffith did stand up comedy when it really? first started. Sure. sure. Um, I've been trying to come across a photograph, but yeah. no luck as of yet. So, so that's really cool. So anyway, out there that knows of one, please let us know. Yeah, and so. you'll and so for folks listening, uh, Andy Griffith show. Was a was a popular show. I don't. It's, it was in black and white for um, a lot, of, and and you could still see it when if you wake up in the morning on Sundance <laughs> Channel three hundred one Channel three hundred one at Cox Cable and Little Opie, Little Opie, <laughs> Little it's, Opie. It'll, it's Who had on, hair and it it's a it's a good show. It, it is. still is. I, I'll find myself watching it. Yeah. So that's well, really interesting. And in and in the files and and there were so many pictures taken at so many events. And this is this is one of the pictures that. Um, yeah. Was dropped to me. And there's, there's Jerry Melvin. Jerry Melvin, Jerry Melvin sitting there. Um, you know, Leroy, sure. Governor Leroy Collins. You know, the place was a very classy operation. Mm -hmm. um, you know, 
they're all in white dinner jackets, you know, in this particular image, they're all in white dinner jackets with black ties. And, you know, this is a picture, you know, the folks listening can't see, but a very shy, off to the side, Roger Clary with his white dinner jacket and his bow tie standing in, in the lounge of the Shalimar Club with Miss Ella. And they lived right next door. They built their home after the Shalimar Club was built and running. They built their home right next door. And so where when you come down from Eglin, mm-hmm. the hotel that's there on Mage yeah. Drive and, and Eglin, Eglin Boulevard now, uh, you'll see the hotel. And that's where Ella and Roger's home was until they moved to Destin in later years. And Mayor Franks again. I mean, so some people don't realize that where Cheers is today. Right. That's part of the building. Part of the back. Yes. That Shalimar Club was at which I yeah. think is pretty cool. Yeah. So, What we remember when we were kids... And here's Tom Rice again. ...was you know, going to Choctahatchee High School. It was built in 1953, opened in 53. The first class went from the K through 12 school here downtown Fort Walton. There was a compromise made to not move the high school to Niceville or Valpee, but to have it somewhere in between. Mm-hmm. So there were Long Needle Pines, you know, Meg, where Meg's Drive is, that where Meg's, Meg's Middle mm-hmm. School is today. They built the Choctahatchee High School and it opened and paint still smelling fresh in 1953. But there was, um, you know, quite a few families that had settled here from Armenia. There were Armenians and the Guderian family had the Bally High Motel. There were several hotels really? that dealt with military folks. You know, Eglin, Eglin was huge during World War II. And that's what a lot of the, lot of the growth of the area were people getting sand in their shoes and coming back here yeah. and opening up businesses. My father-in-law, Starkey Motel, you know, 1953-54, built that. You know, Roger Clary comes out of World War II, builds a Shalimar Club, partners with his brother-in-law to run the sawmill when we go up to Niceville to the Mullet Festival grounds. Yeah. Roger, Roger owned the sawmill. And when we were kids, you wouldn't you who, wouldn't go. Who was his son-in-law, real quick? His it was his brother-in-law, brother. Miss Ellis, Miss Ellis' okay. brother. And and you know he was in the lumber business, so Mr. Clary was as much in the the bar business as he was in the lumber business. He loved wood. If you look at the Shalimar Club today, when you go by, we've we've been just so lucky that that building has not been demolished. It's well built. It's huge. It's now the, the, you know, it's rented by the owners to Georgia Tech. And, you know, by it being utilized, it's been saved. Roger Clare also built Silver Beach Cottages, which was on the other side of Destin, where the Silver Beach Towers are today, um, almost in line with the Destin Airport. And to make a reservation there, there weren't any telephone lines yet to that part of Destin when the Shalimar Club was in operation. So you made your reservation for the Silver Beach Cottages at the same number. Roger Clary, manager and owner of both places. How about that? It's hard for me to look at Shalimar the same way after learning so much about its history. The future, I think, of the town and surrounding Port Dixie is headed in the right direction. Mayor Franks is certainly optimistic and a good sport, especially uh, when it comes to people outside of his town calling him mayor and asking him to help them out. Here's Mayor Franks. Well, interesting enough, when I was a kid, I would go and we had tennis lessons out there at Shalimar Point. And I remember even as a kid thinking, man, I love this place. There was just something about Shalimar. And so when my wife and I moved here, I just, I wanted to, um, as mayor, I just want, what can we do to make it even better? 
what I did when I decided to be married is I just went to every business and that I could and talked to them and asked them what they liked about it. And a lot of it's the history, you know. I'm not going to say Shalomar is this great growing, you know, metro, but it's a small town. I and mean, you mentioned Mayberry. I feel like it is a type of Mayberry. Yeah. Um, and one of the things I really want to do as mayor is get us together more, which is what we do. And the 75th, um, people loved it. They absolutely loved it. And just watching the kids and our future, they're out there playing. Um, I just think that's the magic of a community, getting together and, and enjoying each other. So, um, But we have a lot of thriving businesses in this town. Um, like you said, it's a clean town, good community, uh, neighbors helping each other. So it's a good place to live. I can't tell you how many people think that I'm still their mayor. I'm like, look, you're, you know, technically you're not, but they don't even care. They're like, well, you're, you're our mayor. So I try, I don't really get into that very much. If they're in Shalimar, if there's something I can be a part of, especially with the kids, I'm there. You know, I don't get too hung up on that. So it's a community, yeah. in my opinion. So This episode was written and produced by me. The executive producer is April Sarver. She is the public information officer for Okaloosa County. The theme music for Flashback is composed by Jason Shaw on audionautics.com. Special thanks to Kay Saxon Brooks, Gareth Stearns, Tom Rice, and Mayor Mark Franks. Thanks for joining me, and I'll see you around town. Awesome.